All right, hopefully you are in Luke 19. I actually want to start with a, a sad story, um, a really tragic story, actually a, a, a terribly horrific story. It takes, you're like, oh, great, wow, set the mood right. This story takes place actually 2,000 years ago, roughly, in A.D. 70. And what happened was the proud city of Jerusalem was laid siege by the Roman army. Four legions of Roman soldiers in particular. The historian Josephus recounts the details. Actually, it's interesting, he was a Jewish guy, but he was hired by Rome to record the history of the siege of Jerusalem, and he was present for the events. He observed them personally. Josephus tells us that over the course of about nine long months, the Romans uh, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, this wonderful city, the city of King David. And first, uh, the city was starved through famine, then it was assaulted with great engines of war. And then finally, it was invaded by the Roman legions and sacked. Its walls were torn down. Uh, Its people were crucified, many of them burned alive, and the rest slaughtered in the streets. Houses were burned down along with this temple, this great temple, gilded on the outside in gold. All the gold was stripped, so much gold that it caused the, the price of gold to be cut in half because of the surplus in the markets. The house of God burned to the ground. By the end of the Roman siege, almost 100,000 people were taken into slavery, those who weren't killed. They were either uh, sold as slaves or they were shipped off to be used in the gladiator games throughout the Roman Empire. Many of them were sent to Egypt to work in labor camps in the mines. But worse than that, more than 1,100,000 people of Jewish descent caused the streets of this city to just run with blood as they were murdered. 1.1 million people. I I had one story I was going to tell, but I ran it by my wife, and she said, yes, it's too gruesome. You shouldn't tell that one. Josephus recounts some particularly awful stories. I'll spare you that one, but I will tell you one that's a little more tame. At one point, uh, a group of people persuaded by a false prophet who promised redemption managed to persuade a group of 6,000 people, mostly women and children, to climb up on this embattlement. And once they were there, they would find a way out of of the siege. And uh, instead, the Romans set fire to the embattlement and burned alive 6,000 people. The Romans conquered the city. They slaughtered the guilty. They looted the temple. They burned it to the ground. By the time they were finished, Almost no stone was left on another stone except for a few uh, towers that the Romans left as sort of a memento to remember that you don't mess with Rome. So that anyone who saw those things would be reminded that this is what happens to people when they take a stand against the Roman Empire. And it's interesting to note, too, that the Romans actually offered terms of peaceful surrender to the Jewish people on several occasions, actually. Josephus records that Titus, the commander of the army, essentially pleaded with these people. Josephus did as well. Lay down your weapons, come out, we will be gracious to you. And the Jews refused because they were certain that God would come to their rescue, would set them free from their enemies. Now, the history books 
will tell you that all of this happened because there was a Jewish uprising against Rome. As Rome was having a civil war back in the center of their empire, the Jews thought, here's a great opportunity for us to rise up and throw off our captors, okay? The history books will tell us that all of this occurred because the people of Israel were desperate to free themselves from servitude to the Roman Empire. And I would say, in part, those reasons are true. That's partially why Jerusalem was destroyed. But I want to say to you, it's only part of the reason. And we're going to look here at Luke 19. Jesus is going to tell us a different reason. He's going to give us an entirely different interpretation of these events and why they occurred. He's going to say that the tragedy of Jerusalem being burned to the ground is not the result of the ebb and flow of empires as they rise and fall. Instead, in Luke 19, Jesus is going to tell us that God himself set his face against Jerusalem, that he was the divine author of the destruction of that city, and it was a severe judgment against those people for their disobedience. Jesus is going to foretell the destruction of Jerusalem as the high cost of high treason against the king of kings. So Jerusalem, Jesus is essentially going to say, was destroyed because God himself set his face against these people for their hard, rebellious, and impenitent hearts. Let's read Luke 19, hopefully you're there, verses 41 to 44. Uh, It says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now after hearing the tragic story about the destruction of Jerusalem, this horrifying event, hearing Jesus prophesy about what is in store for this city, after hearing him say all of this tragedy, like I said, is the high cost of high treason against the king of kings, I think it could be easy for us to sort of become fixated on the awful and terrifying judgment of God. Uh, In contrast to what is often overly emphasized in in many church congregations uh, about Jesus, you know, being this sort of warm, fuzzy guy, the Bible is not shy. It's very explicit, actually, that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, a holy God. And I do think we need to be aware of that. I want to draw your attention to that for a moment. I think the destruction of Jerusalem that I just described as God's judgment on that city is a severe judgment indeed. But I want you to see that long before Jerusalem was destroyed, long before the destruction and judgment comes upon this city, 40 years after Jesus prophesies this event, I want, to see, I want you to see an incredible and profound truth about our God in this text. Look at verse 41. It says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept 
over it. He wept over it. See, it could be easy for us to get stuck on the judgment of God as we get into the next couple chapters of Luke. Man, read these next couple of chapters. We're going to hear the story of the wicked tenants. We're going to hear more details about the destruction of Jerusalem as Jesus prophesies further things about it. We're going to see him go into the temple and be filled with righteous rage at people who are profiteering off of the worship of God. But before we get into those difficult chapters, I want you to see this as a heading for what is coming. Jesus wept over what would befall the people of Jerusalem. And I want to comfort you with the truth, actually. Comfort you with the truth that we worship the God who weeps over sin. He weeps over the dreadful consequences of sin. Yes, ultimately, God will judge sin, and I think it would be dishonest for me to try and wiggle around that and not be honest about it like some people do. But before God brings his wrath towards sin, God shows us his broken heart for what our sin has done to corrupt us. He weeps for our disfigured hearts, for the consequences that have befallen humanity because of our rebellion. And so, I want your hearts to be actually encouraged by the truth that because Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, you and I can have a deep and profound hope in the fact that God will never turn away those who share his brokenness for sin, his sadness over the tragedy of sin. Yes, he judges those with hard and rebellious hearts against him, but only because, only because they were foolish enough not to seek his kindness when his eyes were filled with tears and his heart was heavy with compassion for broken people. And I, I, I want to ask you this question. I mean, does your theology allow for a God who weeps over sin? Your sin, the sin of other people. Or, or maybe you grew up in one of those Christian religious traditions where your theology doesn't have room for that because God is just P.O.'d. But understand, he, he weeps. He weeps. And I think that in, in Jesus' weeping, we see that our need is just to come to him. Our need is to come to him. I think that that's what Jesus' desire was, was for these people in Jerusalem to just come to him. But I want to unpack this idea because if our need is to come to him, then what does that mean specifically? Real quick, look at verse 42. Jesus says about Jerusalem, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. I, I think that the repetition here, would that you, even you, shows the limitless mercy of Jesus. Uh, a read through the Old Testament, I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, just finishing up Second Chronicles right now, and a read through the Old Testament will make you painfully aware that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, had a strained relationship with God at best. It's interesting that even the name Israel means he who wrestles with God. They were always unfaithful. I mean, it's just this constant ebb and flow of unfaithfulness. Yet even they who should have known better, even they who should have known better, would have been accepted by God if they had only sought the things that make for peace. 
And as we see God's kindness towards Israel, his ever-faithfulness, his steadfast love, his limitless depths of grace, then let us never doubt the limitless depths of his grace towards us, towards mankind. Here is a God truly filled with unlimited patience, inexhaustible forgiveness, unbounded love, and as the Psalms proclaim again and again and again, steadfast love and faithfulness. And so here's where we find an answer to our question. If our need is to come to Jesus, that is our need as we see him weep. What does that mean? How specifically do we do that? First, I want to give you a negative example because I think that the crowd here is a good example of how we don't do this. What not to do. Remember last week, if you were here, we looked at the triumphal entry. So Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. He's on the outskirts. And here come this crowd of people who've been following him around. And they begin to praise him as he makes his way into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on the surface, it would seem as if these people have not rejected Jesus, that they have actually accepted Jesus as they praise him while he comes. It would seem that they, in fact, do know the things that make for peace. To welcome the ambassador of God who has come with the intention of bringing peace. I mean, to be very explicit, I think what Jesus intends here, the thing that makes for peace is Jesus. I mean, accepting Jesus is what brings peace to mankind. And so all it would take for this city to avoid the destruction that is in store for them is to welcome home the king of kings. And on the surface, they do appear to do that. But what we're going to see as the story unfolds is that they want something from Jesus. And when they don't get what they want, they take him out back and they execute him despite the fact that he's guilty of no wrong. And so here is the ambassador of peace himself, sent by God to bring a ceasefire, to declare an end to the war that man has waged against God. But instead of accept the terms of surrender and bring about the peace that Jesus offers, these people murder him in cold blood. The people of Jerusalem reject Jesus as Lord, despite their cries of Hosanna. They wanted Jesus on their terms, but as soon as they realize he's not going to play by their rules, they promptly turn on him. And it's really tragic because they miss their chance for peace in rejecting Christ. So then, come back to this question. What does it mean to actually come to Jesus, to accept Jesus? If our need is to do that, how do we do that rightly? What does it mean for us to accept him and not just appear to accept him like this crowd appears to accept him? I want to try and quickly give you four ways that I think we go about accepting Jesus. Four may be too many. If you're like me, four is too many. I can't remember four things. So maybe you want to just think through one of these things. And what I would love for you to do is even as you listen to place yourself before the throne of God as he sheds tears over the brokenness of this world that he has made, and I want to encourage you to evaluate your heart, to ask yourself, how am I doing at receiving Jesus on his terms in relation to these things? 
Because I want you to know, it's not enough to simply cry out Hosanna and externally give Jesus praise. That is the first step, but true acceptance of Jesus is something far deeper than that, something that takes place deep in your heart where God transforms you and you begin to see real significant change in your life because of your relationship with this weeping Jesus. Uh, first, to accept Jesus, I have to say real quick, somebody texted me, I can't keep track of four things, like four kids, yes, that's very challenging, thank you. Um, okay, first, listen, to accept Jesus is to be humbled before him, to be humbled before him. I think that Luke has been making this, I'm going to bring these things out, and I think they're peppered all throughout the gospel of Luke. I'm going to try and point out a couple places. Luke has been making this clear throughout his gospel. I want, to, I want you to go back to Luke 17. Uh, I don't remember how long ago it was that I preached on this, but Luke 17, um, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is going to put people in their place with some shameless honesty about the difference between men and God, humanity and God. He's going to in no uncertain terms, remind people of our position before him, that to accept Jesus is to be humbled before him. Not merely give him lip service, but to truly see life as belonging to him for him to do with as he pleases. Look at these verses, 7 through 10. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come in at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward then you will eat and drink? Does he, think the, or does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Man, in short, to accept Jesus is to accept that we are his, not he is ours. Do you catch that? To accept Jesus is to be humbled before him and acknowledge that we belong to him. For him to do with as he pleases, he is not ours for us to do with him as we might please. And at the end of everything that God has for us, whether it be joy or suffering, whether it be trial or ecstatic living, we only have the joy to simply say to him at the end of all of it, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. And so have you accepted Jesus on these terms, like this? Have you accepted your humble position before him? Have you accepted that you belong to him for him to do with as he pleases? Have you accepted that in serving him is all of your joy? I want to be so bold as to say without accepting Jesus with humility like this, I don't, I don't think that you've actually accepted Jesus. Second, to accept Jesus is to obey him. Early in this gospel, back in Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us about how Jesus gathered up his disciples. I mean, it's familiar to all of us probably, right? He, he gives this simple invitation, follow me. And we see that in obedience, Matthew, the tax collector, leaves 
his lucrative tax-collecting business, his booth right there on the side of the road, and he goes to follow Jesus. He accepts the terms unconditionally and obeys Jesus. And then Peter, we see he receives a similar invitation. He's about to take over the family business on the fishing boat, and he feels, he feels compelled when Jesus says, follow me. He leaves it all behind him to obey what Jesus has asked him to do. Jesus makes it clear. To accept him means that we accept the consequences of following him. We take up our cross. We denounce sin. We abandon self for the sake of Christ and others. We go where he goes. We do what he does. We love what he loves. So understand, accepting Jesus is not merely something you do with your mouth. It is an utter reorientation of your heart so that you want what he wants and you long to be where he is. And tragically, it seems to me that the message of Christianity is often explained merely as sort of an invitation to receive Jesus without receiving his burden. But that's not right. That's incomplete. To accept Jesus is not merely to call him Lord, to not merely praise, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but to actually do then what he says. So again, ask yourself, have you accepted Jesus on his terms? Are you obedient to his call on your life? Is your life marked by at least a sincere effort to do what he says? to take up your cross, to deny yourself and follow him. Don't misunderstand. Yes, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, that's what Scripture tells us is necessary to be saved. And to be saved from the consequences of sin, we need to do nothing more than merely come to the feet of weeping Jesus and express our need for him. He will heal our brokenness and redeem our sins at that point. Absolutely. But once we hear him from that point say, follow me, share my burden, take my yoke upon you, it's easy and it's light, then in hearing him say that to us, the desire of our heart becomes not merely to speak his praises, but to go where he goes, to join his mission, to obediently follow wherever he might lead, whatever the cost might be. And so I want you to understand, to accept Jesus truly, not just with lip service, but in your heart, is to obey whatever the consequences might be. Third, to accept Jesus is to trust him. Um, in, in my experience over the years, I've come upon a category of Christian, and, and to be kind, generous, I'm going to call them Christians, although I'm not sure in every case that they truly have accepted Christ on his terms. And the reason is because this category of Christian is willing to trust Jesus with eternal life, but not this life. In other words, they accept Jesus when it comes to the next life, but they don't accept him when it comes to this life. They want Jesus to govern their death, but not to govern their life. I think I can draw sort of a correlation that might explain how strange this is. Um, sometimes people don't want to give money to the church that they attend to support the church for a variety of reasons. But occasionally, uh, in my conversations with pastors or Christians, I'll, I'll hear people say, well, I just don't trust the leadership of my church enough to do what's right with my money. 
okay? I hope you can hear the, the utter irony of that statement, sort of the stupidity even of it. And I'm not even talking about money. That's not the point. Listen, they trust the leadership of the church to care for their eternal soul, but not manage well a couple dollars of their money. They don't trust these people to do what is right with their money, but they will trust them with their eternal soul? It's absurd. If you don't trust somebody with something as insignificant as your money, how could you possibly entrust to their care something as significant as your soul? And the same principle applies here. How could we claim that we trust Jesus for all eternity? We trust him with our death but we don't trust him in our daily life? It's nonsensical. Let me suggest to you that if you don't trust Jesus to care for you on a daily basis, to provide for you in this life, if you don't see him as competent to ground you in the storms of this life, to supply your needs, physical and spiritual, then I submit to you, you don't actually trust him with your eternal life. You have not, in fact, accepted him. If you don't trust him through the suffering that he leads you through in this life, if you don't trust him to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, if you don't trust him with your children, if you don't trust him with your career, your old age, your passions, your successes, even your failures, and I, and I mean in a growing sense, right? Not an absolute sense, but your at least endeavoring to do so more and more, then I really don't think you can claim that you've trusted him with your soul either. Again, I'm reminded of a story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is is with his disciples on a boat and he's sleeping and this storm comes up. You know this story probably too, right? In the middle of the storm, Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat and his disciples are panicked. And out of fear, they wake him up and they They beg him to help them, and with a word, he stills the winds and the waves, and they wonder and marvel, who is this man who commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him? Man, they got to learn firsthand in that moment that Jesus is trustworthy. And so what about you? Again, I would ask, do you claim to trust him with your soul? Do you claim to have accepted him, and yet... You're finding it hard to trust him with today or tomorrow or this week or this year. He is trustworthy. He is. And his tears for the city of Jerusalem reveal to us that he longs for us to accept him as one who will take good care of us, to be gentle with us. Finally, I want to point out that to accept Jesus is to love him. I'm sure that you, I mean, if I say it again, to accept Jesus is to love him. I'm sure that this idea seems simplistic to you. And and actually, on one level, it is, right? A preacher telling you to love Jesus is like elementary kindergarten stuff, isn't it? But on another level, it's so profound. It is so utterly important. This is the pinnacle and essence of Christianity, to love Jesus in reply to, to his love for you. I think because the word love is so um, misunderstood these days, it's become so corrupted and confused by our culture, I've come to prefer the word affection. 
I like this word, affection. To accept Jesus is to have affection for him, a warmth, a longing, a a sense of desire for friendship and nearness to him. Um, If you listen closely to people share the gospel, sometimes you, you you will hear the gospel spoken in terms that are utterly devoid of affection. What do I mean by that? Uh, sometimes you'll hear the motivating, uh, the motivation behind Christianity is fear. Uh, like the predicted judgment on the city of Jerusalem. Uh, sort of along those lines. Uh, in, in essence, it, it sounds something like this. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to suffer the judgment of God. And so I will come to Jesus. I mean, I think if Jesus had been more explicit about what's coming up for Jerusalem, if if he had dared to share some of the stories that I shared with you about what would befall this city in 40 years, I think he would have seen a mass revival of repentance. Because out of fear, people would have been motivated to accept him. Do you see what I'm getting at? They would have been terrified of the consequences of Rome descending on them, the consequences of the judgment of God. And out of fear, I think they might have been persuaded to do just about anything. And listen, I think at a starting point, to escape the wrath of God and the suffering of hell, I'll take it. That's a decent place to start. I can accept fear as an initial motivator. But Jesus didn't come to scare a bunch of people into following him. He shed tears for these people. He came to show the affection that God has for a broken world. That we might turn, therefore, and give that affection back to him as we see how gentle and kind and good he is. Scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. So come into the gentle arms of Jesus because in love, he weeps for you. I want to try and say this. Man, in in teaching as your pastor, um, I always try to bring about some application points so you can do things, so you can respond in obedience. And I love passing on knowledge. I enjoy that. I love theological insights that is fun for me. But honestly, far more importantly, all I long for is for you to have a greater affection for Jesus. I want you to love Christ Jesus as you encounter him through his word, through the Holy Spirit inside of you, through his body around you. I want you to long to sit at the feet of Jesus as he weeps over those who have rejected him. I long for you to share in the love that Jesus has for the Father, for the Spirit, the love that he has for his bride, the church, the love that he has for this creation that he made as broken as it is, the love that he has for the lost and the hurting who are far from him. And man, seriously, let me put it in real, in sort of difficult terms, and I hope this comes out right. If you've been coming to Maricopa Springs for a while, and you reflect back on your experience here at our church, if you can't say that in being part of this church, your love for Jesus has grown, your affection for Jesus has increased, then I really do want to encourage you to find another church. 
And, and I really do mean that. I do. Not because I want you to go. I don't. I actually feel bad. I feel, I feel guilty. It's, it's not because I want you to go. It's because I want you to grow. I want you to know the love of Christ more deeply so that your heart responds to him with an overflowing, joyful love. And if we're not doing that here at Maricopa Springs, like if, if, if you can't say that over the course of your time here, that has increased to some degree, if we're not helping you in that regard here at this church, then I beg you, look around and find a church that is doing that. Because that is the whole point. You can do all of these other things, truly. You can humble yourself before him. You can trust him. You can even obey him. And those are good and important things. I would say they are essential things. But if you don't love him, then all of that is for nothing. If you don't grow in your knowledge of the riches of Christ deep down in your heart of hearts so that you obey the greatest commandment more and more to love God, If your heart doesn't echo back to our weeping Jesus, the overflowing love that God has poured into you now reflected back to him, then I would say we we have not been doing it right at Maricopa Springs. And I long for you to know the affection that Jesus has for you, that you might give it back to him. More than anything else in this life, I long for that. Jesus weeps because he loves these people. They are not lovely, but he loves them. And rather than return that affection, they turn upon him with hatred. And so look, let me quickly just summarize. A day of judgment is coming. And we're going to cover some of those difficult stories about that judgment in the coming weeks as we press through Luke. But before the judgment comes, Jesus weeps. He weeps in love. He weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for humanity. He weeps for you. And he weeps because his desire is that he would be accepted by his creation. Not just with words that come from your mouth or theological ideas that fill up your head, but down in the very depths of your heart and your soul that you would be humbled before him, the great king, that you would trust and obey him in every circumstance, that you would come to know his love and respond in affection. At the end of this, Jesus says, this is the time of Jerusalem's visitation. This, this right now, is the time of your visitation. And I pray that you would accept Christ as he comes in these ways. We're going to do communion together now. The way that we're going to do that this morning is through intinction, which just means that around the room there are some tables set up with some crackers and some juice. Uh, As our worship team leads us in worship, you are free to make your way to one of those tables and just grab a cracker and dip it in the juice and just eat it right there. And listen, there's lots of things that we could cover as to why we do communion, right? It's a remembrance of all that Christ has done for us. It's an opportunity to repent before him, to, to, to humble ourselves, really, and express our need for him. But when you have done all of that in your heart, I, I want you to move to a place of thanksgiving, of just sit and pour out your affection for Jesus. Like, sit at the feet of weeping Jesus 
and let him know how much you love him for all that he has done for you. Uh, If you're not a believer, it, it would be our heart's desire that you would accept Jesus, that you would give your life to him, that you would surrender it to him. Uh, and we're glad you're with us, but if, if you're not a Christian, I would ask that you don't make your way to one of the tables, and that's for your benefit. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and again, as our team leads us, when you are prepared at any point during the next couple of songs, go celebrate communion. Father, we thank you so much for your affection. I don't believe that Jesus should have wept tears over this rebellious city. I don't believe that he should weep tears over our rebellious hearts. And yet, how great you are, God, that even before the judgment comes, we see you weeping with the consequences of sin. And Lord, I I pray that we would respond to your great affection with our own affection. That we would, in fact, do these things that mean that we've truly accepted you, that we would trust you and obey you and follow you. But ultimately, Lord, that all of that would come because we love you. Teach us to love you. I pray that you would show us the significance of communion, the body of Christ and his blood poured out that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought back into right relationship with you. And God, as we celebrate communion and we pour out our hearts to you, Lord, let that come out of our mouths in a joyful noise as well, as we praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.